Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Thank you, Hilde. Another impressive and important podcast today. Today's topic is all about the HER2 biomarker, a lung biomarker, as well as one for breast cancer. Hilde, you've assembled a great panel, including Dr. Posse Yenna, director of the Lowe Center for Thoracic Oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and the scientific director of the Belfer Center for Applied Cancer Research. Also, two wonderful people, HER2 patients, Gabrielle Goodman and Bill Brand, to share their stories. And we welcome back Karen Susserman, an Exxon 20 Group virtual meeting leader and a patient advocate. Hilde, I turn things over to you. Well, this podcast today has um, a group of extraordinary people focusing on a biomarker that interests me a great deal. It's HER2. And um, many of you may think about HER2 with respect to breast cancer, but in fact, it also exists in lung cancer as well. So um, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. Um, and we have a very special guest, Passy Yannet. Uh, <laughs> did you like that? That's my finish. It's, a, it's pretty good. It's not bad. Yeah. It's not bad. That's I'll take it. I'll take it. I could do better in French than Finnish, but okay. <laughs> in any case, I am so um, eager to hear um, your experience with biomarker development, which you played a, a very big role in. We did a, two great podcasts, one on um, um, the Human Genome Project and how that led to biomarkers. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit about how HER2 wound up in the picture with lung cancer. Uh, sure. Happy to. Yeah. So really the, the first uh, biomarker for a drug in non-small cell lung cancer was the identification of EGFR mutations. So EGFR is a, or EGFR is a family that has four genes, EGFR, HER2, HER3, and HER4. And EGFR mutations were identified in the early 2000s and really came from a number of different avenues. It came from early sort of systematic sequencing efforts that were led by uh, Matt Myerson and Bill Sellers, uh, in vitro studies that is studying models, cell line models, so lung cancer uh, cells that were derived from patients that had characteristics of those individuals who benefited, that we knew clinically benefited from um, EGFR inhibitors like gefitinib, which is being tested in the clinic. And we knew that individuals who were uh, women, who were of Asian ethnicity, who were never smoked and who had adenocarcinoma, were the one, the, the, those are the features that correlated with efficacy of EGFR inhibitors. And it ultimately came from studying patients who, or patients' tumors of those individuals who were treated with uh, early-stage EGFR inhibitors like gefitinib and erlotinib and studying the cancers of those individuals that both responded and didn't respond to the treatments. And really the unifying feature uh, amongst all those studies were EGFR mutations, which were found in about 
uh, which are found in about 10 to 15 percent of individuals of Caucasian patients who develop uh, lung cancer and up to half of individuals uh, in Asia who develop uh, uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And that inspired then others to start stop looking for other genetic alterations and her two was uh, identified not too far after EGFR mutations were identified. And I think probably the investigators who decided to evaluate HER2 for mutations asked a simple question. That is that if it's a part of the same kind of superfamily and it's altered in breast cancer, could it be altered in lung cancer? And, and indeed you do find HER2 mutations in lung cancer. Breast cancer, you normally breast cancer, you often find HER2 amplifications where you have more copies of the normal form of HER2, although you do have some HER2 mutations in breast cancer. In lung cancer, you mostly the alterations in HER2 are mostly the mutations in HER2. I have a particular interest in HER2 um, biomarker mutation. Um, I have a very good friend, my friend Seth who um, had a recurrence of lung cancer, and it turned out that he had a HER2 mutation. We were working on composing some music together for a hopefully Broadway show that we've written together. One of these days, we'll see. Um, that was about four or five years ago. And I remember at the time, it was very unusual. It seemed very unusual. I went to a meeting uh, the big lung cancer, I mean, the big cancer meetings, um, ASCO in Chicago, and uh, somebody was actually riding on a bus who said she was going to deliver a paper on her too. And we talked about how unusual it was. And um, so at the time, um, with Seth, my friend, I wondered, um, it wasn't clear that there was some particular drug for her too, but I wondered would the breast cancer drugs work or how would that go? So how does one think about drug development for some of these biomarkers? So uh, let me take that in a couple of pieces. So HER2 mutations are found in about 2 to 3% of lung cancer uh, compared to EGFR, as I mentioned, about 10 to 15%. So it is, much, it's, it is far less common than uh, uh, EGFR mutant lung cancer and has um, not... Um, until recently had the same um, uh, success in drug development as uh, EGFR mutant cancers have. And part of that has to do with uh, sort of the location of the HER2 mutations, um, and which has made it a little bit challenging. And a lot of the developments or a lot of the evaluations of potential therapies in HER2 mutant lung cancer have originated from successes of targeting HER2 in breast cancer. And so the only, uh, currently the only approved therapy for her to mutant lung cancer is trastuzumab deruxtecan or TDXT. And this is a HER2 antibody drug conjugate where the HER2 antibody is linked to essentially a chemotherapy and you're using the antibody to deliver chemotherapy specifically into tumor cells. And that is an agent that works well in HER2 positive uh, breast cancer uh, also in gastric cancer, and now uh, uh, is specifically approved for approved for HER2 mutant lung cancer based on clinical trials showing that it was uh, effective in that patient population. 
So are you saying then that chemotherapy also is used um, in the treatment of HER2 as well as a tar a targeted therapy? Um, yes. So currently the HER2 antibody drug conjugate, the trastuzumab durexican, that's approved as a second-line therapy. It's not approved as a first-line therapy. Typical first-line therapy um, is chemotherapy. And then... Um, then the, then the antibody drug conjugate, although, although there is an ongoing clinical trial, evaluating or comparing starting out with a HER2 antibody drug conjugate versus chemotherapy as a randomized yeah. clinical trial to determine which approach is better as the initial treatment for somebody with advanced HER2 mutant lung cancer. It all sounds so extraordinarily complicated and um, hats off to all the investigators who find these interactions and these connections that you know nobody knew about in the first place. So it's, it's just extraordinary. And thank you for all your research and all the work you've done in this area. There has been a lot of progress in this field. I, I will just uh, mention that none of the therapy or therapeutic advances are possible or can be applied to patients with lung cancer unless patients' tumors get tested for all the different genetic alterations. And that is now the standard of care for patients with newly diagnosed lung cancer to have a panel-based testing for all the different biomarkers where we have approved therapies. And that can be done typically from the tumor or, or sometimes from the blood. Um, but without that intermediate piece, you don't know what particular, what particular, if any genetic alteration where there could be a targeted therapy is present in that patient's uh, cancer. So it's, it's, it's a critical component of implementing targeted therapy uh, and, and, and bringing it to, the patient, to, to our patients. So we have a recent podcast, um, and basically the, that podcast plus a, a blog that we have on our, on our website talks about the importance of having these tumors tested. And so um, one of the issues is what gets in the way of everyone getting their tumor tested. And so I, I hope everybody will listen to that podcast because that was extremely important. And you're emphasizing how everyone who's listening, if you have cancer yourself or you have a loved one or you a neighbor or someone you know, just to emphasize how important it is to get those those uh, biomarkers um, evaluated. So thank you for yes adding that adding that in. I I was going to say everyone with lung cancer, being a human being, has their own story, and um, we'd like to turn to Bill and see if you would be willing to share your very interesting story about how you were diagnosed. Yeah, thank you, Hildy, and thank you. Uh, Posse and all the people behind the scenes doing all this research and dedicating their lives to uh, curing the, the cancer I have. It's, it's rare, and um, I want you to know we all really appreciate it. So I'm the mayor of Redondo Beach, California, and I'm flying to Mexico, Cabo, to meet the new president of Mexico. We have sister cities, and uh, my wife is in China. And I think, hey, I'll fly day, fly down a day early and go surfing. I've been a big surfer my whole life and uh, stay at this hotel right on the beach where the surf's good. And so I'm flying down day early and and um, 
you know, I fall asleep on the plane like we all do. And uh, I wake up and that nice couple from Sonoma, California, who had never been to Mexico, I was filling them in, is gone. And sitting next to me now is uh, a lady with an oxygen tank and a mask. And the plane is dead quiet. I don't know if you've ever flown to Mexico, but <laughs> especially Cabo, the, the, the planes aren't quiet. But this, it was dead quiet. And there was a lady with a oxygen tank and a mask. And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> and what's with the oxygen tank and the mask? And look, I've been diagnosed as healthy as a horse. Had had a physical a, a month earlier, and um, um, I was on this treadmill, and, and I thought they were going to turn it up, and and he turned it off, and he said, "Get off," and I'm like, "Is that it?" And the doctor's making notes. He goes, "Well, from all us overweight fifty plus year old men, fuck you." <laughs> and I'm like, "Wow," <laughs> he said, "Yeah, just just get off, and you know you're fine." So. The lady with the oxygen tank and the mask. Um, I said, "Hey, what's with the mask and the tank?" And and she goes, "Well, I'm a nurse practitioner." She's looking me straight in the eyes, and um, you had a seizure, and I came to be with you. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't know what's going on, right? And 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 I tell her, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And she's looking straight in my eyes. You know, you know, this ever happened to you before? I go, well, I still don't know what you're talking about, but I couldn't deny the tank and the mask and quietness of the plane. And and I had bit up my tongue. And so my tongue hurt and I was, you know, startled and I was starting to believe everything. Right. And I go, well, how long was I out? I thought, you know, you nap. I think I was out for like five minutes. She goes about an hour. I had an hour. Are you kidding? And then right then the plane was landing and in comes a wheelchair and I, I just still kind of startled and they take me off to a hotel and the hotel sends me off to a uh, private pre doctor practitioner and he's got his own uh, room for patients and they take me in there and this wonderful, wonderful nurse stays with me all night. And I get up in the morning, the doctor comes in and he said, Bill, um, uh, you can go to your conference with the president, uh, but don't go in the water, because <laughs> if this had happened in the water, he's doing this motion, you know, but you wouldn't be here. So anyway, I went to the conference and I went home and he, and he had said, you know, go see your doctor when, as soon as you get home. And I came home and I'd kind of forgotten everything. But then I went to the doctor and and uh, told him and he said, well, you need to get a, a scan right away, a brain scan. You know, um, okay. <laughs> so I went on Monday morning and got my scan at six in the morning. I was driving all around town and forgotten everything. You know, I was a busy guy, you know, and um, the doctor calls me at four o'clock in the afternoon and says, Bill, you need to go. They found a mass in your head and you need to go to the hospital right now. And I was like, what? Uh Yes, pack your things. And I'm like, does my wife need to come home from China? And he says, yes, she needs to come home. Call her and tell her she's got to come home. Sorry. No, it's, it's very difficult. It's so difficult. Thank you for telling us this story. I'll finish this. In no, a second. I know when I hear. I go to the hospital and I'm in the emergency room. I'm like, okay, this is going to be forever. As soon as I walk in, tell them who I am, they call my name. 
William Brand, William Brand, uh, come to the office. So I go in there and the emergency room doctor's there and there's two brain surgeons there and they got my scan on the, on the screen. <clears throat> and they go, well, you see that mass here? That's got to come out. Are you guys talking about brain surgery right now? And they said, well, not now, but probably tomorrow morning. As you can imagine, I'm like freaked out. So right then my phone rings and it's my wife from China. She doesn't know anything. And I can't talk to her. And I hand the phone to the doctor and he lays it out and uh, hangs up, gives the phone back to me. She's on her way home. Right. Okay. <clears throat> and so uh, I go to room and that night, um, the doctor comes in, one of the brain surgeons, and he says, well, have I got good news and bad news? <laughs> well, I could, I could use some good news right now. <clears throat> and he says, there isn't going to be any brain surgery. Okay, well, what's the bad news? You have, you have lung cancer and it's spread to your brain. And so we got to treat it, you know, systemically. And I'm like, oh, right. Okay, so anyway, uh, all these other doctors come in. Um, you know, the uh, radiation oncology, oncologist, blah, blah. I got to wrap this up because I could talk for too long. And uh, they start treating me, you know, scans and blah, blah, blah. And so um, they misdiagnose me. They do a biopsy and they uh, diagnose me as uh, ROS1. So the uh, oncologist. ROS1, Ross, I just explained to our audience, ROS1 is another biomarker. Yeah, so they misdiagnosed me. I forget to test. I'm sorry. And um, but I didn't know that at that time. And they start me on this special drug for Ross one. And um, this goes on. I'm on it for like a month, maybe a little over. And I go to another doctor. I go, I got to get another another opinion. And so I go to Cedar Sinai and this wonderful doctor has got like 40 years, 30, 40 years experience. And uh, he does his own scan. He does another scan and um, another biopsy, and he calls and apologizes to me. Bill, they've they've misdiagnosed you. You're, you're not Ross one. You're um, her two exon twenty. Um, you know, so I'm freaked out. I don't know what's going on, and uh, he's apologizing to me, and he immediately starts me on carboplatinum, Keytruda, and um, Olympta. And um, it starts going away. And they give me four treatments of, of carboplatinum. And it all starts happening and clicking and going away. And yeah. And so for eight months, I was on these three three drugs. And uh, uh, eventually it stopped working. Now we got to try something else. They tried a, another specialized drug. Uh, it was in trial. It was a DZD 9008. And uh, it took a couple months to find out that wasn't working. So I was going downhill fast. And so anyway, um, in comes Dr. Kamich in Colorado, who um, my, my doctor knew well. And he's, you know, they're just trying to figure out what to do next. And Dr. Kamich recommends in her to. And my doctor, Natalia in L.A. said, well, <laughs> let's try it. And, and, and they tried it and uh, it worked like magic, worked like magic with two treatments. Uh, we're in, I'm, I'm with Dr. Natalia, they're checking out, seeing how it's going. And, and Dr. Dr. Natalia's like, how do you feel? And I go, I feel, I feel much better. I think it's working. And he goes, well, sometimes the patients know before we do. And sure enough, and I was on that for a year and a half. For a year and a half. 
and I was fine. I was back to normal. Uh, it almost completely disappeared. So anyway, um, I'll wrap this up, but stopped working after about a month and a half. Uh, I was on a couple other drugs and I, you know, developed varices. So they took me off those. And now I'm on a trial, uh, BI 1810-631. That's from a German company. And I've been on that for about 10, 11 months and it's been working. I've been on the highest dose for the longest time. And, but I gotta say, it's, it's probably not working anymore. So um, that's my, I'm going back to Duntali and Cedar sinai and he's one that kept me going all this time. And uh, we'll see. So uh, that's my journey. I've been the mayor, as you can imagine, the town, I was on the front page of the paper. Right. Brand has been diagnosed with uh, stage four lung cancer. Well, and it's quite a story that, that- That was about four and a half years ago. So here I am. Yeah. Well. Maybe I have just this optimistic side, but I think the name of the game is to just keep positive and keep looking for some, you know, new uh, treatments. And clinical trials is another area that people need to know about. It's not being, um, you know, experimented upon. It's that there are new drugs and that they, you know, they could be available to really help you. So thanks, Bill, so much for sharing yeah, your journey. Uh, in her too was not uh, qualified or whatever the word is for treatment with my when when I started it and because of my success and other people's success it's now I forgot what the nerve is certified or whatever the word is for treatment uh, for uh, Exxon twenty her too because of what's happened to me and several other people and the other thing I would emphasize is second opinions second opinions second opinions I've had many different doctors and. And it's been extremely, it's why I'm alive, because I shopped around. I didn't just settle in with one doctor and go with whatever they said. That's great. You have a lot of courage and a lot of, um, well, I can see why you'd be the mayor and running a, a town. You know, you've got a lot of uh, power to you. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. As thousands of audience members know, Upstage Lung Cancer events, the concerts, are fun, meaningful, inspiring, and memorable. And you should know that we invest in cutting-edge diagnostic research to find lung cancer early and greatly improve on the five-year survival rate. We also bring voice to the fact that young people get lung cancer. They really do. Unfortunately, doctors don't know how or why. Proceeds from our concerts support research to help find answers to these questions. Hilde Grossman and her team aim to entertain and inform because the show must go on. Find out how you can help at upstagelungcancer.org. Now back to the podcast, here's Hildy. Our next guest, who has her own story, as I said, everyone's got their own story, and we're really interested in hearing, Gabrielle, um, your experience um, as well. Thank you. Well, that was a very moving story, Bill. It's, every story is moving, but yours was particularly so. Um my story is about almost nine years ago, I, kind of, I had a cough and I just noticed I was just using cough drops a, a little more. Like I'd go into my Pilates class and I'd always take a cough drop with me because I didn't want to annoy anyone with coughing. You know, a girlfriend said to me, you know, you've had that cough for a while. Have you, have you had that checked out? Like, oh, I just think maybe is it allergies, the dry air, the whatever. But you know, you're you're right. I I really should. And I started thinking about it. I was 
uh, 55. And it was just the age that my stepmother and two of her friends, right in those mid 50 years, were diagnosed with cancer. Um, one with breast, one with lymphoma, and I don't recall the third. And I thought, you know, this is when these things, I'm, I'm going to make an appointment with my doctor. So I do. And I go in and like Bill, I'm very fit, a runner, a tennis player, did my Pilates. Fitness has always been a part of my life and live a healthy lifestyle. Basically was on no medications whatsoever and had never been. So she just looks at me and she goes, oh, you know what, you're, you're fine. Here, here's an inhaler. And I said, well, I'm here because I just want to be sure I don't have cancer. I don't want to ignore anything. And I have had this cough for a while and no reason, but, and I told her the story about my stepmother and her friends. So I just want to be on top of things. And she, I said, I just want to know that I don't have cancer. And she says, you don't have cancer. Here's an inhaler you know, call me in a couple months. And so after about, I don't know, a few weeks, there was no change. I quit using the inhaler. It did nothing. Went back and she said, well, just use the inhaler more. It's like, I said, there's nothing else. There's nothing else to be, no, no, there's nothing to be done. And, and I, I, I said, you're sure I don't have cancer? No, you don't have cancer you know, or and cancer or any, or lung or anything. And no, and so that's exactly what you want to hear. You don't have cancer. That's what I was there to hear. Rule it out. Great. I'm on my way. Cough still isn't gone. And the same girlfriend said, cut that cough. You still, and it was intermittent. It wasn't all day, every day. It would come, it would go. I thought, you know what? I, I went on vacation and was in a very cold climate and it really triggered the cough. And I went home and I called her office and I said, I'm coming in, book an appointment. And she said, we don't need, we've already seen you this. We don't need to see you again. I said, well, then get my records together. I'm going to go get another doctor. And she said, okay, come in. So I went in. She ordered a, a second chest x-ray. She had ordered one before. Said, all clear, nothing to worry about. Well, the second one, she said, I'm sending you to a pulmonologist, yada, yada. Everything, the whole mood shifted. They send me to a pulmonologist. Everybody is very constrained in what they will say to me and very, didn't want to answer a lot of questions. And I could tell it was very strange. Well, it turns out it's now been 20 months since my original encounter with her, a chest X-ray that was misread. There was a small tumor there. And so for 20 months, my cancer has been allowed to progress and is now in the lymph nodes. And so I went from early to stage three B cancer. So I'm, they're saying, let's, we see something, but we don't know what it is, nothing to worry about. And I said, gosh, that came, it wasn't there. Oh no, it wasn't there before. Well, it was. Um, so I go in, my husband and I, to the interventional pulmonologist who had said, oh, we're just going to biopsy this tissue and sit down. And he says, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that we did find a mass and we've tested it and you have stage 3B lung cancer, and it's a very difficult diagnosis, and it's not curable. And But we're going to refer you to oncology. And I said, I'm shocked. I'm like, I'm totally healthy. I, 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 I My lung, I feel nothing. How could this be? How could I have stage, how could I have incurable cancer? 
and have no sign but a cough that my doctor wasn't even concerned about. And they were very apologetic, but said, your oncologist will be able to tell you more. And so then I started, I went from cisplatin, etoposide. He said, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say you have a slight chance, maybe 5% chance of a cure at 3B. He was being very, very optimistic. Um, cisplatin, etoposide, about nine months, I had a node light up. And so I was not cured. I then had uh, carboplatin, pemetrexed. That worked for a little while. I moved my care. I'm very lucky I live in a university town. I moved my care from one large prominent hospital chain to a major university who could access clinical trials. Um, they did the next generation sequencing. Originally, when I'd had it done, they found nothing. They expected me to be GFR, but I wasn't, and they did not pick up the HER2 at that time. So then I met a university, and I enrolled in the Mobocertinib. It was the AP7833, and then it was the Takeda drug. It was Ariad Pharmaceuticals, then Takeda, but a TKI. That was a wonderful drug for me. Unfortunately, they've decided to remove it from the market and not pursue full um, authorization, which is very disappointing because I was on that drug for 33 months and had a great lifestyle during that time, um, felt very good. But when things started to shift, there was an opportunity to get into the inher 2 trial. And my doctor thought, you know, we could leave you on the other because it's kind of unclear, but I'm afraid this trial is going to close and I really think that's the drug you should go to. So I then moved to the inher 2 and I was on a very high dose of that, Bill. I, I think I had asked you once before about your dose. I was on a higher dose than has been um, approved by the FDA at this point. And I did have some pneumonitis complications, which I'd have to take a break and take steroids and get it calmed down. I had to do that twice. And the second time it happened, my doctor thought, you know, I don't know I'm, I'm about going back on. We keep getting some the scarring in your lungs. Uh, I would take a break for three months or so. And then I, uh, Marsha Horn connected me with David Burrs. Marsha, just to, just to interrupt you, I'm so sorry, but so Marsha Horn um, is head uh, of an organization called Exxon 20. So I hear what you're saying. You, you have to be persistent. You have to keep pushing back and not be told wait a year or wait a two years or come back. You have to keep being persistent. And if something doesn't work, there may be clinical trials. In any case, Marsha Horn um, is running Exxon 20. We have a podcast with her and also our next guest um, to talk about the amazing work that they're doing. So I don't wanna cut short your story, but I think being able to connect up with her as did Bill, makes so much difference. And so I would like to introduce Karen Susserman to tell us a little more about the organization of um, Exxon 20. And it's a group that anyone listening um, should at least know about and put it in the back of their mind for themselves or someone else they may know who uh, would benefit from from this group. Karen, can you tell us a little bit more? Sure, absolutely. Um, and it's it's really my pleasure to be here um, to help move this space forward. 
So I just thank um, Dr. Yenna, who's um, at the forefront of so much uh, thoracic oncology. And of course, Gabrielle and Bill who are here and Hildy, thank you so much for staying in this space and help, moving, help it move forward. Um, I can't underestimate the benefits of the Exxon 20 group. And I will say that it is overarchingly uh, run by the International Cancer Advocacy Network. So really anyone listening here can contact Marsha Bourne, who Hildy just spoke about, who will point them in the right direction. And I think what's so critical about a cancer journey, and certainly was the case um, for my husband, my late husband and myself, um, we felt utterly hopeless um, when receiving a diagnosis and very similar to Bill and Gabrielle. My husband was fit as a fiddle, skier, um, racquetball player, a squash player, um, never smoker, et cetera, et cetera. Very healthy lifestyle. Um, we ate only organically, et cetera, et cetera. So we were incredulous as well at his diagnosis, very similarly. But when we got that diagnosis, I immediately stopped listening to the doctor and started Googling and I found Marsha Horn. And within, I wanna say 45 minutes, she replied. And that changed the trajectory of our journey. And I will say, since my husband's not here to say it, but it, it he, owed everything to Marsha and the Exxon 20 group and what they brought. Um, so a little bit about some of the, the amazing things that Exxon 20 group does, and, and we have the under under the Exxon 20 group really is her two Exxon 20 and EGFR Exxon 20. So patients like Gabrielle and Bill um, with the HER2 mutation, and actually Gabrielle's even a little bit more, we didn't get into specifically her biomarkers, um, which are critical, but they're a little bit, little bit different. Um, everyone's is a little bit different, but as Dr. Yana will say, there are a lot of, there are a lot of treatments, clinical trial drugs, et cetera, et cetera, that may be effective, even if they are not specifically being researched for a specific, maybe outlying EGFR or uh, HER2 mutation. Um, made. So it's super, super important, as the Exxon 20 group always said and said to us from day one, get that NGS sequencing testing. And whether it's from the tissue uh, itself, the tumor tissue itself, or whether it is from uh, a liquid biopsy, which is um, another way that tumors are being tested for driver biomarkers. And what we mean by that is as Dr. Yan explained and, and our other two guests, the way lung cancer is treated these days is really by identifying what is driving that tumor. And there are so many different targeted therapies, which is why it was critical that Bill got his second opinion to disaffirm his ROS1 diagnosis. He was on the wrong drug, which didn't and wouldn't have helped him. The new driver, the new uh, oncologist, I'm sorry, was able to get him on the right path, which is critically important. Um, one of the the things that um, the Exxon 20 does uh, does provide is a weekly Zoom for patients and caregivers. It was originally designed for care caregivers, which I was, but interestingly, uh, we had more patients than caregivers attend. Um, we've been doing this for almost a year and a half, and um, 
it's it's come to be I, what I do. My role is really to facilitate. I'm not a therapist. Un, uh, unanimously, the group does not want therapy. They want empathy. They want people listening and hearing them and acknowledging them and sadly empathizing and, and really understanding um, being able to be in their in their shoes and understanding whether a patient or caregiver how their journey is going um, so i would say that in addition to being able to discuss clinical trials barriers to healthcare delivery which every country uh, we have we since we do it via zoom we're able to reach uh patients and care partners worldwide so we've had people from australia south africa europe etc canada um and all of these each of these countries have their own barriers to health care delivery and what the exxon 20 group can do and what a lot of these patients by sharing this information and staying up on all of the uh, available clinical trials, et cetera, et cetera, and GS testing, all of that, it really enables people to empower one another and send them in right directions, uh, send them back to Marsha. You know, some people will say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to bother Marsha. Well, what Marsha does is she, without a fee, will evaluate quickly where a patient is, whether they're at the time of diagnosis or at a pivotal point where they progressed on a treatment and they need to uh, they need to access a plan B or C or D, et cetera, and she will help put them in touch with um, either a clinical trial, et cetera, et cetera, or you know, the proper institution. I think, um, yes, the Exxon 20 group and Marsha as a, a driver of her own, in a healthy, wonderful way, is such a, a resource. And so we hope all of you listening will, again, uh, take advantage of this resource if if this applies to you. Um, I just want to thank you so much. There's, We could be on for four hours. There's no question. And so <laughs> I just want to point out that one of the, I think one of the most important things um, that I know of both as a psychologist and also someone who was diagnosed with lung cancer um, is that the sense of, of not being alone is um, paramount um, because all of us know that you know things will happen in our lifetime, but none of us really believes it. So that especially if you're healthy and vigorous and all these kinds of things and curveballs happen, um, then it's just really important to realize that there is help, there are resources, and beyond the um, physical medicine side of things, there are emotional and psychosocial supports that are available. It's, it's extraordinary. So I wanted to just wrap up with Posse bringing you back and just say, where so where do you see uh, lung cancer treatment, especially with um, more and more biomarkers being identified, where do you see the future path of care for lung cancer? Well, I think for many of our many of the lung cancers, the ones that we've been talking about that have genetic alterations, it is um, 
there are a couple couple of things that I think are are coming. One is to one is of course new therapies and new drugs, new ways to new inhibitors that work by different mechanisms than than before. So an, an antibody drug conjugate, the drug that uh, was mentioned, the BI drug is a small molecule, but they target the same same alteration, and by continuing to innovate and figuring out new ways to target the same thing, we can continue to have successive effective therapies. The second is to make therapies that have been successful uh, even more successful, and that is that is developing combination treatments. So for EGFR mutant lung cancer, there are combination therapies that are being evaluated or have been evaluated giving chemotherapy with EGFR inhibitors or two kinds of EGFR inhibitors simultaneously to hopefully make the medicines work better and for longer and and, and evaluate and of course evaluate those through cl- clinical trials because we always have to balance out more may be more effective but it may also be more toxic and it's always a balance because patients have to live with the side effects of the therapies and you don't want the you want to have a the right balance of an effective therapy that has manageable to uh, little uh, side effects, so it can be tolerable tolerable over long periods of time, and people can live uh, normal to relatively normal lives while getting active therapy. And so, those are some of the efforts that I think we, as a lung cancer community, are trying to focus on uh, moving forward. I like to leave this conversation with hope. Don't give up, and don't let somebody tell you when you're coughing, that it's nothing. Um, If it's persistent and it's bothering you, keep after it. And so I just want to thank our wonderful group today. I want to thank Bill and Gabrielle, Karen, and thank you so much, Posse, for adding so much information. And we'll follow up again on more with Exxon 20 um, uh, and all the other um, opportunities for for situations that are more rare in lung cancer, but every single person deserves the best care and the best treatment possible. So thank you so much, everyone, and uh, we'll see you all next time. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.